From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the program today, though, talking about some new numbers, and these have to do with the overdose crisis, specifically in the city of Nanaimo. The disturbances caused by activities on this property are unfair to the citizens and the taxpaying residents of our city. There's nothing more than an an open-air crack house. I haven't seen any indication of lives being saved. Those two voices there, the first, Ian Thorpe, a North, or sorry, Nanaimo City Councillor, followed by resident Tim McGrath. They were actually speaking back in February of 2023, a year ago, and that was when the discussion was taking place about a safe consumption area in that city. Well, today, after several months of research, the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association has released a new report, and this takes a look at the numbers when talking about the overdose crisis in that city. And joining me to talk a little bit more about what they found out is Colin Middleton, president of the Nanaimo Area Public Safety Association. Colin, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Jill. Yeah, good to talk to you. Thank you. A lot of information in this report going through uh, the numbers. Can you talk a little bit uh, about how you came up with this information or where the information came from? Sure. So um, we were able to obtain... Uh, the time-stamped uh, high-acuity overdose call data from the Nanaimo Fire Department, um, who shared the results of, of data that they collect um, between late June 2021 and um, November 28, uh, 2023. Uh, we received that data in early December, um, and since that time, we've been uh, looking at it, pouring over it, and trying to understand what um, is going on. We were able to take that timestamped data and um, connect it to the uh, the NIMO fire incident uh, rescue database that's publicly available, and we were able to locate um, the where all of these. Uh, overdoses are are occurring. And so our report sheds light on um, the gravity of the crisis um, and specifically uh, the the location of where the majority of them take place. Um, Our results found that 71% of all high acuity overdoses occur within a small number, uh, 15 uh, hotspot areas that represents about 4% of the geographical land base of the Nanaimo. And the greatest numbers of calls are concentrated in the downtown, uh, the northern boundary of the south end, and the Brecon Hill and Newcastle areas. And that's you know, not a surprise to anybody who lives in these areas. And not a surprise because uh, of what about those areas? Well, I mean, those are the areas where uh, we see the uh, fire trucks and ambulances. Uh, we hear the sirens going off all the time. Uh, it's also the areas where we see open-air drug use happening all the time. It's the areas where um, services that's, that um, uh, serve uh, people who use drugs and are street-entrenched uh, are, are um, established. And it's where we have the uh, largest issues with uh, street disorder, crime, um, intimidation, threats, assaults, and so on. And when you look at the numbers and when you're talking about overdose, are you are you looking at the fire department? Are you are they responses to overdose and then are they overdose fatalities or included in these numbers? Is it also overdose people who overdose but but do survive? 
Uh, it includes overdoses um, where people survive. So the um, the fire department responds to all high acuity overdoses, which are uh, coded. They're called purple or red calls, and those are ones that are uh, determined by dispatch to be uh, immediately life threatening. So it doesn't include um, the overdoses that only uh, BC EHS responds to. Uh, uh, we didn't have that data, but that would that would be a, a much larger number than than is even shown in in the report, which is already pretty staggering. Um, so it, uh, it 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 just focuses on on all of those overdoses, and then we have the data on fatalities. Now, the we don't we don't know for sure whether the um, whether the high acuity overdose responses are also ones where the the patient uh, died. That's information we were not able to obtain from from uh, uh, public records, but we we do know that those are the most likely to to cause a fatality because they are uh, immediately life threatening. And the numbers as well, if you look at the the numbers, so, and again, looking at the information from uh, whether it's fire crews or ambulance and paramedics attending, uh, it has certainly gone up a lot. If we look back to, say, 2016 to 2020 uh, to uh, 2022 to 2023. Yeah. And, you know, what's what's actually really remarkable about about this data set, and I, and I mean, I know. When I say remarkable, I mean tragic. It's a, it's an absolute catastrophe what's happening in Nanaimo right now. Um, the 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 escalation that occurred um, in very late 2022 through to about June of of 2023 was was exponential, and the numbers uh, on a monthly basis tripled between November 2022 and and. Uh, June of 2023, and it, that escalation uh, coincided with um, the the decriminalization of illicit substances. Um, but, however, what's what's particularly uh, con- confusing to us is that it that actually start the escalation actually started before the escalation really started to take off in in November or December. Um, of of last year, or, or sorry, of 2022, and just continued to escalate through um, the the um, rollout of, of decriminalization. And and when you look at the 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 comparison there, or you look at how the the trajectory of these uh, these numbers goes, is is it because of decriminalization? Because if you look at and Nanaimo might be different, but if we look at a lot of places in Metro Vancouver, one of the arguments was well, police hadn't really uh, been criminalizing it, hadn't really been for small amounts, hadn't hadn't really been stopping people, hadn't been been taking them away. So so did that really make a big difference? Well, I mean, we we don't we don't know, uh, and but what we do know is is that this this escalation did happen, and it's not clear whether that's because uh, so many more people, um, you know, maybe thought that it was, you know, because because drugs can become decriminalized, that maybe they are all of a sudden uh, considered more acceptable socially and therefore safer. Um, but uh, some of the worst weeks for um, high numbers of overdoses in a given day uh, happened, um, for example, the week of 420, which is, which is well known as a, as a day for drug user liberation. Uh, there were, 
there were three or four days during that week where there were more than 10 high-acuity overdose calls uh, per day. Um, and then, and, and other times that where there are specific peaks, um, you know, it suggests, like, it suggests that, um, you know, it's not, it's, it's a question of how much people are using um, not not just whether the, the the how toxic the drugs are. We also looked at the um, drug poisoning alerts from uh, Island Health, and we tracked them to see uh, whether overdoses went up or down uh, before and after uh, those those poisoning alerts were were issued. And we found no significant difference between um, the eight days prior to and the eight days following a drug poisoning alert, with the exception of a, a, a difference uh, between the day that a poisoning alert was issued and three to five days afterwards, there was a, a decrease in high acuity overdose calls and then rebounded after that. And, uh, and of course, the, there were drug poisoning alerts that were going out um, frequently uh, as the numbers continued to escalate and then stabilize and decrease um, through through late late summer and into the fall of, of 2023. So what are you hoping that so that comes of this information and looking at these numbers and the number of high acuity overdoses, overdose calls, the number of people who have died? What, what do you think this report or what does this point out? What is needed? Well, I mean, I think it speaks to um, the the desperate need for for uh, senior levels of government to to cooperate really first and foremost um, we've made nine urgent recommendations when we're calling for these uh, senior levels of government provincial and federal government to intervene and erupt and interrupt what we're calling up a positive feedback loop of human suffering um, they need to prioritize the needs of the unhoused by separating the impoverished from the hardest to house expand the allocation of resources to support social reintegration into civilian society. Um, we're calling for an immediate and fulsome implementation of the recommendations made by the BC um, Select Standing Committee on Health from 2022 um, that uh, to this date, they released it in late 2022, and it's not clear to me or anybody else that I talk to whether they've made any significant progress on on. Uh, moving forward with with those recommendations, with the exception exception of of expanding uh, safer supply and harm reduction, there's not an apparent um, similar level of urgency being put towards education, prevention of people getting involved in drugs in the first place, of of, of dealing with the root causes of people's uh, uh, struggles and traumas that are that are having that are driving people to use drugs in the first place. Um, and we we just think that there needs to be um, an awful lot more uh, pressure put on uh, senior levels of government to to respond to this emergency with the with the um, desperate urgency that is required. It just doesn't seem like the message is getting to them that they're not moving fast enough. And it's a bloodbath out here. Uh, yeah, and and I know we've we've talked about this before, and certainly uh, others in Nanaimo and other cities uh, as well uh, w- w- would agree with everything you've said there. Uh, Colin, we do have to leave it there though for today. I appreciate you so much coming on the show and talking more uh, about these numbers, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you, Jill. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time to check in with Claire Newell, president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. 
Good afternoon, Jill. And I just heard Emily during the news talking about the fact that groceries are so expensive and people are, you know, avoiding aisles and things. Um, and while groceries are expensive, uh, StatsCan just came out with the cost of airline tickets dropping. So I wanted to start with that. So this is a trend that we've been seeing since probably spring of last year. But the average ticket in January of this year costs 14.3% less than in January last year, which is hmm. good news. Um, and then, of course, um, they went down from the high in December, which is, you know, holiday season and it's just, it's always inflated. But the price between December and January, um, so December 23 to January 24, uh, it went down 23.7%. So I do anticipate that prices will even continue to drop a little more right now. Um, the Canadian press is reporting that the price of an airline ticket in Canada is still about 10% above those 2019 levels. And that's just a reflection of aviation's higher costs and slightly lower capacity in a post-pandemic world. So that means not enough planes are going to the destinations that they were. And really, a lot of that has to do with Asia. Because it was the last to open up. I think half the flights are going to Hong Kong than there were pre-COVID than they are now, than is now. Huh, and that is very interesting. But also, uh, I'm yeah. sure people will say good news if the prices are coming down. Yeah, and actually, you know what? Sometimes I, I don't often do this, and I'm going to kind of do it today. But I just an example of something that kind of, sometimes prices just shock me. Um, I just, just read that there was this 10-night Caribbean cruise doing the Eastern Caribbean, which happens to be like my favorite area. You know, it's all the Saint, Saint Martin, Saint Kitts, Saint Lucia, that kind of area. Um, October the 25th, which is right when things start to get really cold here, but a 10 night Eastern Caribbean cruise, $5.99. Oh, I mean, that's so cheap. The taxes are $3.90, but I still thought it was a really good deal. Anyway, back to, to news. I just sometimes get thrown by those deals that catch my eye. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, we will have more deals. Uh, I know you have more deals for us as well. Mm-hmm. Also wanted to touch on uh, some uh, a bit of news about Boeing and the, the 737 MAX. Yeah, interesting. I knew that this would be happening, but they, the person who was in charge of the 737 program at Boeing, they let go. I mean, they had to have a scapegoat. I mean, he it was overseeing the whole 737 program, and there it has just been like a nightmare for for years. So, um, yeah, that announcement just came out. So interesting to see who will be replacing that person. But we'll keep we'll keep you posted on that. All right, uh, that's uh, some breaking news in the travel industry. Uh, I love this story as well because I know more and more people are wanting to track their bags and uh, unfortunately find themselves in a situation where your bag didn't go to the same destination you are. And uh, Air Canada is looking into that. Yeah. So Air Canada, uh, probably about four four months ago, started offering baggage tracking to domestic flyers on on their airline. And just as of this week, they've started to roll it out for U.S. flights. So this is really important, especially if you're traveling with mobility aids. You want to know where they are, like wheelchairs, uh, walkers, all sorts of different things. So it is now available on U.S. flights. You download an app and it kind of tracks the process of your check bags right through the journey. I do know that they have talked about including some 
international flights as well. As soon as that happens, I know a lot of people are anxious for that because they want their their bags or their mobility aids when they're going to somewhere like Europe or you know doing a trans-Pacific to Asia. They want it. And if their bags go awry, at least they'll have some peace of mind that they can know where it is and how long it will take to get back. All right, that is uh, good news to keep on. Better if it just arrives when you're when you get there yeah. as well. But <laughs> good news, you can track it. Uh, I have not flown Porter Airlines, but I've talked to a lot of people who uh, have and say it's great, and they're uh, expanding a little bit. Yeah, they're really um, expanding their North American network. And you and I chatted over the past couple of weeks that they're doing an, uh, an interline agreement, so a code share agreement with Alaska Airlines. And if in fact Alaska gets Hawaiian, that'll just even expand their their reach even further into Hawaii. But Porter, and I know you mentioned you hadn't flown them, and I know a lot of people who have, and many, many who have not, um, but they have taken possession of a number, and they have tons on order, of Embraer E-195 aircraft. They're these beautiful 132-seater planes with two seats on either side and a single middle aisle. So there's no middle seat. People love that free Wi-Fi um, and snacks and drinks and things. So for many, it's a, a really good option. So what they're doing now is they're uh, creating crew bases right across Canada. So this is going to support 350 pilots and flight attendants. And Vancouver is one of the airports that is getting a new crew base. So is Montreal and Ottawa. So again, all supporting the airlines rapidly expanding North American network. Um, another thing that they mentioned, and it's been underserviced, is that the carrier will be doing daily service between Toronto and Saskatoon. And that's going to be starting in May, middle of May, May 16th. So good news for anyone living in um, Saskatoon, if you've got relatives there. I know um, some extended family who who, who live there, and it really has been under service, but just not a lot of, of lift, but now they'll be able to get to Toronto and then go from there, wherever they happen to want to go, whether it's Eastern Canada or to a hot, sunny destination. All right. Uh, always good to hear of airlines expanding and more destinations as part of their network. Uh, this is an interesting one, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, because it seems like the lounges at airports are getting busier and busier, whether it's Ugh. more people are flying the ticket that's required or paying their way in, but they are getting busier, aren't they? Oh, you got it. There's many, many times that my husband or I, who, who travel um, quite a bit for work, We'll just bypass the Maple Leaf lounges and even some of the, the pay-per-use lounges. And it's, they're just chock-a-block. And so Air Canada is actually putting in a new concept. They've done a test of it in Toronto. And they're expanding it to Montreal later this year and Vancouver uh, next year in 2025. So we can start to look for these. There's this kind of this new concept in lounges because normally you go in, you sit down, you get a comfy seat and, you know, you're there for a, a, a kind of a longer period of time. Sometimes you have to go up and get service. Like if you're asking for food or drinks, they actually serve you rather than grab and go. What they're doing now is they're putting in a whole new concept and it really is. It's like drop by and grab and go facility. So someone who's like my husband who, you know, gets to the airport and just wants to grab something, go to the, go to the gate and get on board the aircraft, not sit and, and spend extra time that's unnecessary at the airport. This is going to be really great because what, one thing about lounges is there's often a sign saying, you know, please consume what you take in the lounge. Mm -hmm. This is total opposite. It's going to say, have a, 
you know, grab whatever it is you need. And it's just suited for busy travelers who are short on time. So um, I'm, I'm really glad to see this. This will take away some of the pressure on those maple leaf lounges that are so busy, like you mentioned. And what I like, the, the few times when I've been lucky enough to go into the lounge is it's just this little oasis in the airport. And if you do have a lot of time that whether you're in between flights or something, you don't listen to the announcements. So you do have to make sure you're, you're keeping up with the time. But it is like a little break from the chaos that can be the airports. Exactly. And so for those people who are connecting or have long layovers or a big delay, I think those are the ones that where people will go in and sit down in that little oasis. But these grab and goes for everybody else is going to be really handy dandy because you can grab a drink or water or whatever you want to do. If you've got the status or the type of ticket that lets you into one of the regular lounges, you'll get access to these now moving forward. All right. Interesting how they're doing that. I want to get to a couple more before we get to the deals. Uh, this is I, I found. So if you were to ask people, what do you think is the most affordable travel destination for 2024? <laughs> I'm not sure this would be the answer. No, I, I know this just, just came out. It was um, done by we thrift it's uh, basically a study that they looked at online e-commerce and the affordability of public transit and tourist attractions and the price of accommodation in a city and they found the 10 most affordable destinations with number one and i i agree with you i didn't realize this might be the cheapest i knew it was pretty cheap but it was new delhi india Huh. Um, scoring, uh, you know, 69.2 out of 80. It's all on a scale of affordability. I'm just going to quickly read through. I think people might be interested in this. Hanoi, Vietnam was second. Cairo, Istanbul, um, Hurghada in Egypt, Bali, Indonesia, which is so popular from here. And then Bangkok, Thailand, also really popular from here. Marrakesh, Morocco, Phuket, Thailand, um, so two Thai destinations, and then Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. That one surprised me. I thought it was a bit more expensive. One of the cool websites that I've mentioned before, but if you, you're you know, a, a listener and haven't caught it, it's really worth checking out before you kind of book a destination to go to this website called Numbio. It's spelled N-U-M-B-E-O, numbio.com. And it actually shows you the cost of like a beer or a a uh, loaf of bread or, or a baked good or renting vehicles. It's basically the cost of living where you go. So if you're going, especially for an extended period of time, like a long stay, this is a really cool website. So you kind of know what it, what it costs because there are certain places where you go and get a cab for 10 minutes and you're just shocked because it costs you like $75 or almost $100 if you're in Dubai. I mean, it, I was in Sweden and my husband just like his jaw dropped when it was $75 for a 10 minute cab ride. So um, this is a really good website. All right. That is a good one. Yeah. Interesting, interesting list. I want to talk about this story and then we'll get to the deals as well, because we have talked at length about incidents and you mentioned it off the top that you want your device. If you have a mobility issue or a disability, you want airlines to respect that. And WestJet is addressing that. Yeah, they acknowledged and apologized for incidents where their airline failed. So they, what they came out saying is that 99.9% of the carrier's 260,000 plus customers who required support last year, which works out to about 700 each day, they got their mobility aids and had a really good experience. But every case that goes wrong is one too many. So they're putting in some new processes, um, a process to confirm to customers that mobility aids are actually loaded into the cargo hold so they know it's coming with them and procedures to properly store those devices on board uh, across its whole network are going to be improved. So it's all being rolled out really, really soon. But again, um, 
really important for those people who do travel with mobility aids. And they're right. Any uh, incident that goes bad is is not good enough. No, absolutely. So it's uh, good to see another airline uh, addressing that for sure. Let's get to the deals, Claire. What other deals do you have for us today? Well, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, um, the numbers of people going to Mexico, you and I chatted about last week, they're just phenomenal. And for, for good reason, I probably know 10 people in Vallarta at the moment. Um, anyway, the cheapest window that I could find for a four-star, which I like, um, is April the 6th through until the 16th, the air and seven nights at a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, $8.99. The taxes on that are $4.90. Um, a seven-night Alaska cruise, Three dates to choose from April the 28th, May 5th, or September 22nd. Seven-night cruise, round-trip Vancouver, walk-on, walk-off the ship, $4.99. The taxes, a $4.36. And then the last one, you know what? India was on the list of the most affordable destinations. Remembering, though, when you include airfare and a lot of other things, it will get... um, get expensive but i still think this is a really great deal compared to other packages to india that i've seen this is a guided vacation to india that will hit places like delhi jaipur which is the pink city agra to see the taj mahal um jodhpur it's got a great itinerary which you can see online but between may 11th and december the 5th it includes the international airfare that's needed from vancouver 11 night guided vacation all of the accommodation, breakfast every day, the transfers, the sightseeing, and the tax, thirty-four twenty-nine. Hmm. All right. Well, that's and what a jam-packed and uh, great itinerary. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I know you've been to India, so you probably have hit most of those places. Yes, and and each one different, but uh, amazing seeing all of those places. Claire, thank you so much. What uh, great deals and great travel advice. Thank you for this, and we'll check in with you again next week. Sounds great, Jill. Have a great week. Well, I'm sure most people listening right now are familiar with that song. And let's go back to the mid-1970s. And that's when the Eagles started working on Hotel California. And the work on the song included a yellow notepad, Don Henley with input from co-founder Glenn Fry jotted down thoughts about the dark desert highway, the lovely place, and it went on from there. Well, those pieces of paper have now become the focal point of a court case that is making its way through the system in the United States. And joining me to talk a bit more about this particular case is Alan Cross. Alan Cross is the host of the ongoing history of new music and uncharted crime and mayhem in the music industry podcasts. Alan, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. This is a very interesting case and about a song I think everybody probably recognizes, and that is the Eagles, Hotel California. What is at the heart of this case? The heart of this case is 80 pages of handwritten notes that would become the Hotel California album, which was released in 1976. Uh, Most of these notes apparently are in Don Henley's handwriting. And the story seems to be that at one point, Henley and the Eagles had given permission to an author to write a book about the band. And that these papers, which were just scribbles on a shelf someplace, I guess, 
were given to him as research material. He never gave them back. And somehow these papers ended up in the hands of these three guys in New York who are claiming ownership of them. Meanwhile, Don Henley is most upset about this because back in the 1970s, or whenever these papers were handed over to the author, they weren't considered very valuable. But in the last 20 years, the Robelia business has exploded. And something like handwritten lyrics to one of the classic albums of the 20th century are actually extremely valuable. So Henley insists that the lyrics and the notes were stolen, and he wants them back. The people in New York say, no, no, we acquired them by means, and we wish to keep them. They are now ours. So now a court will settle everything. I found that part interesting. So the the three people uh, that uh, are are being accused of this, they're not actually charged with stealing the notes or stealing the manuscripts, but they are charged with conspiring to own and trying to sell them, which uh, is very different. It is. Um, There is going to be a lot of discovery when it comes to the chain of custody of of these papers. Um, Who owned it? Who had the how they passed from person to person and how they came to the possession of the people in New York, and then what their assertions are regarding ownership and the ability to sell them. So it's, it's an interesting charge. Um, usually when something like this happens, it's done quietly out of courts, um, lawyer versus lawyer. In this particular case, it is uh, going to be wide open. So we'll be watching this with a lot of interest. And a lot of interest as well, like you said, that Don Henley claims that these were not handed over, uh, certainly disputes what the three men are saying about this. But he is expected to actually, is he going to take some time out of a very busy schedule and he is expected to actually testify? Well, listen, if, if these lyric, uh, lyric sheets ever went up auction, they would be worth a ton of money. And, I, I, you know, Henley simply asserting his ownership of those things. Uh, you know, this is, we're living in an era when Sotheby's and Julian's and all these other auction houses are making millions upon millions upon millions of dollars selling rock and roll memorabilia. And handwritten lyrics are one of the most valuable things that can be sold because it shows a classic song being born. And in the case of the Eagles in Hotel California, Big record, multi-platinum many times over. This is a record that gave us at least two phrases that we now use in our daily lives. Uh, you can check out and never leave. You can check out what you can never leave from the title track. And the phrase, life fast lane. I mean, we've all used those in colloquial speech. And there, this, this seems to be, in, in, in many ways, the origin of those colloquial phrases. So that adds some, you know, sociological and historical weight to these. 
And when you look at this as well and the way it is playing out, looking at how much this particular song, Hotel California, is still listened to, I think the numbers were something like streamed more than 220 million times just last year in the United States alone. The Hotel California album selling 26 million copies just again in the U.S. over over many years. Uh, That would, I guess, explain why this has become such a big deal. And like you said, the these notes are worth, uh, could potentially be worth a lot of money. Yeah, they certainly could. So um, if I'm if I'm holding them, um, I I would certainly want to assert my ownership so I can reap some of that um, some of the, that, that payday. The creator of those lyrics, you know, it, at what po- I don't know. At what point does the statute of limitations expire? At what point does does uh, the, the chain of uh, custody uh, breakdown. Uh, again, we're going to see, uh, I, I think what we'll see with this particular case is how something that was once tucked away in a box in a garage, forgotten, uh, grows in value, changes hands, and suddenly appears to become uh, extraordinarily valuable, so valuable that we're dealing with millions of dollars. And, and again, you know, if, if we were to go back 25, 30 years, the idea of Sotheby's, one of the greatest auction houses on the planet, selling scribbles <laughs> from rock for big dollars, I mean, we wouldn't have thought about that. Uh, I'm sure when Henley handed over these lyrics to the author, he wasn't even thinking that they were uh, at all valuable. It's like, yeah, here, just bring them back. Um, now you would have those things delivered in a Brinks truck. Yeah, and and even then you might not hand them over. You would you would be uh, holding them and guarding them close, which is also I found interesting about this because apparently so Don Henley told the grand jury uh, he says he never actually gave the biographer the lyrics, but the defense lawyers say they're going to probe his memory, which seems like a pretty difficult thing. How do you how do you get inside and prove someone's memory on what they did and didn't do so many years ago? That's again, that's it. I mean, memories fade. And uh, stories will differ. So, you know, good luck there, Don. He may, you know, find a way to prevail. He's got a lot of money. He uh, will hire some very good lawyers and, and we'll see what happens. Hmm. And so is he asking, is, is he saying that he wants the lyrics back because he, he's saying again that he didn't actually give it to the, the biographers or if he did, the intention was or the implied agreement was, yes, you can use these, but you need to give them back and, and that they never followed up their end of the deal? Somehow, that's how I understand it. But you know how these things get uh, um, get twisted and confused. Uh, it's it's going to take a, a, a jury to figure it out. <laughs> and I, I also, when you talk about Sotheby's, they um, actually listed the song lyrics back in 2016, but then withdrew them at that time, learning that ownership was in question. So this has already been going on for uh, a few years, so almost 10 years, really. Uh, it seems like maybe, I suppose, maybe the courts will bring us an answer on this? I, I think so. I think Don has been um, working this particular case for, for, for quite some time. And it's just taken this long for it to, for a case to be, you know, uh, put on the docket. Um, and again, this is something that we don't really see all that often. You know, occasionally, the only other case that I can think of recently 
was a Kurt Cobain guitar, which had been gifted to the ex-husband of his daughter. And he said that, well, you gave it to me because it was a wedding present. And well, I'm sorry we got divorced, but uh, you gave it to me. It's mine. And, and that created a, a, a court hassle because, you know, a Kurt Cobain guitar will sell for millions of dollars. So it's not something to be, you know, the ownership has to be determined because of the value of the instrument. This is the same kind of thing. I wonder if this has also sparked a lot of people going into their garages or their attics and looking through all of those boxes thinking, hey, wait a minute, I might have a scribbled note or a napkin with something on it that could potentially be worth millions now. Well, not that long ago, somebody in Singapore uh, found a doodle that Kurt Cobain had for them, and uh, it sold for tens of thousands of dollars. And it was just something, you know, at the time, it, it was something that Kurt would do. He would uh, do a little self-portrait or something on a piece of paper. It would be done in 30 seconds less and hand it over to the person. But, you know, with time, with passage of time and, and the notoriety, with the uh, dramatic way that Kurt checked out of this world, uh, something like that becomes extraordinarily valuable. It is an interesting case with a lot of people watching how this one plays out for sure. Alan Cross, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.